Hello, welcome to the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you like the series, you can subscribe on iTunes and like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. And I also, before we get started to finish up the Roman Republic today, I wanted to encourage you to, if you uh, use Facebook and you have seen our page, I'm seeing a lot of people who are following the podcast who are from a lot of different countries, so I encourage you to uh, stop by the Facebook page and just uh, leave a little comment about where you're from and uh, uh, what you like about the series, I suppose. Uh, but to let you guys know who's listening to the podcast so far, uh, I'm seeing a lot from the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, a few uh, from Ireland, the Netherlands, Canada, Australia... Switzerland, Austria, Germany, uh, New Zealand, uh, Italy, and uh, several others as we go down the list from what I'm seeing from my statistics here. So it's really nice to see that we have a, a very uh, diverse uh, group uh, growing of listeners. And of course, I appreciate um, you guys supporting me uh, by at least listening to me go on and on about this uh, European history. I do it because I enjoy it, um, but I hope it is helpful to you guys. So let's get into the Roman Republic again. As you heard from the last episode, and if you've studied uh, Roman history, the Roman Republic was an empire before it became, uh, before the Republic fell. It, it had a, a Senate, it had a limited government, it had the rule of law, it had checks and balances, there wasn't an emperor, but the Republic, nonetheless, it was a territorially and just in fact an empire before the Republic fell. It dominated most of the Mediterranean. So, uh, the Roman Republic, uh, it is heavily influenced by the older culture of Greece as uh, the decades move forward, uh, from literature to language to rhetoric and Greek philosophy. In terms of Roman religion, uh, the family was at the center. There wasn't a lot of uh, doctrinal specific beliefs. And in early Rome, the gods were not in person form. They were spiritual forces. They weren't persons. They were influenced by ritual and ceremony. There was no clergy, uh, so our clergy class, and so the father, the paterfamilias of each family, was also the chief priest of the family. They, the father was the religious leader also. Like in Greece, the questions of morality were not very important to the practice of the religion. It was not central to the purpose of the religion. Again, what we saw from the Greece and many other uh, polytheistic religions, the uh, central original purpose is to keep the gods happy because the gods are not necessarily ethical. The gods are not good all the time. And they may be jealous or upset with humans and they have great powers to punish you. And so making sure that they're kept happy is a central purpose of the religion. Roman influences in their religion also come from Eastern practices, and it grew as contact uh, became more common between uh, the Roman culture and uh, others. And from the Eastern region, it grew, and they're sometimes either approved of by Roman society or suppressed by the Roman Senate. And so there's kind of a, a hot and cold reaction to these outside influences in their religious beliefs and practices.
In terms of Roman education, it was early, it was aimed at boys uh, specifically, and it was the responsibility also of the family. They would, the boys would learn to read, calculate, they would learn religious activities and rituals, they would uh, learn farming uh, basics, uh, standard soldiering techniques, they would read the Twelve Tables, the, the tables of laws for the early Roman Republic. They would study to become basically the purpose of education was to make Roman boys into moral and patriotic citizens who respected and bowed to the traditions. Uh, as Greek culture starts to influence, it led to kind of a shift away from just practical learning to a goal of critical thinking and expanding the mind and, and maximizing the intellectual growth of well-rounded students with literature and philosophy and poetry. Boys started to begin to learn Greek and being bilingual became a standard uh, expectation of education, especially among the upper classes. And there was no Rome, and this was also important because there wasn't really any uh, written Roman literature at the time. Uh, and later, Greek rhetoric became important. Uh, Scipio, that general who defeated Carthage, and he was in, he's in the Italian anthem, he was enamored with uh, Greek philosophy and uh, history. In the later years of the Republic, education became more structured. It started to happen outside of the home more often, and it was usually provided by Greek educators. And so quite literally, what I said back in the Greek, the Greek episodes, you cannot overestimate the influence of Greece because not only of what they did and not only how they inspired uh, future leaders, but Greeks themselves, with the Greek colonization, they go to Rome. And so there are Greek people in Italy, and they are going to be influencing Roman culture. And that is huge because that means they are going to be influencing the next great civilization of European history. They are going to influence the Roman Empire. And so the, you can't overestimate Greece, as important as Rome is. So, uh, so while the studies, so they, they would have Greek teachers from grade school to their, the boys' teenage years and beyond. And while the studies were seen by some as impractical, the Roman Republic had conquered much of the Hellenistic world. And therefore, ironically, or counterintuitively, it was practical for these uh, Roman males who were going to become the leaders of the Roman Republic and, in fact, the empire... It was, it was practical for these boys, these young men, to start learning about the culture and the history and the thought of the te Hellenistic territories that the Roman Republic now controls. Anyway, so they had conquered much of the Hellenistic world, and we can only imagine how much that these men would benefit by learning about it in their education, their Greek-influenced education. So what about women, women in education? Upper-class women would receive at least some formal education at home. However, few, if any, moved on to rhetoric or philosophy because most women were married off in their teenage years at the time when the boys would be studying and starting a family. And it would be a very, very commonplace for uh, the women in their teenage years to marry an older male who was finished, had gone through all of the education. So the, the difference in age meant there was a disruption in the potential for a woman to receive a, an education through her teenage and early 20s.
So they're usually married off by their teenage years and they're starting their own family. But the effect of increasing literacy and education among some women was significant enough for traditional conservative Romans to complain about it. So we do have writings of some Romans who don't like what's going on with women becoming educated complaining about it. So at least was significant enough to be complained about. Slavery. Uh, In early Rome, Rome, slavery was present. It was always practiced throughout the history of Rome from the Republic or the early monarchy to the Republic to throughout the imperial history. So it was present, but it was not very common. Slavery, its prevalence grew with the Republic conquest of the Mediterranean. With the conquest of the Mediterranean territory, 250,000 prisoners of war were put into slavery as punishment. And as I teach world history, we go from culture to culture to culture. Being a prisoner of war was almost always uh, an aspect of who would be put into slavery in ancient civilizations, whether it's Mesopotamia, whether it's Egypt, whether it's um, the Indian cultures, uh, Chinese civilizations. Being a prison, losing in a war means you can go into slavery or you would be put into slavery. And the development of large-scale slave labor on plantations like farming, plantation-like farming enterprises became prominent in the Roman economy. Slaves were treated more harshly than elsewhere. Uh, They were seen as a mere profit opportunity uh, where slaves worked in chains. They were beaten and and raped uh, Without, uh, without a second thought, they were housed in underground prisons. It led to several large-scale and widespread slave rebellions on the island of Sicily in 134 BCE and the famous uh, Spartacus slave uprising in southern Italy, where Spartacus raised an army of 70,000 rebel slaves, which went on for years of them uh, wreaking havoc and destruction in the southern, uh, uh, southern territory of Italy until it was brutally crushed. Slavery remained legal and practiced throughout Roman imperial history until it fell in the West, but its practice declined over time for debatable reasons from either the increased practice of tenant farmers uh, replacing uh, slave labor due to economic pressure, uh, and there's other theories for why it declines. In the late Roman Republic, expansion, territorial expansion was sporadic, Uh, but not extensively planned out. There wasn't like this committee in the government who's saying we want to take over this piece of land, we want to take over this territory, and then we're going to go over here. There wasn't necessarily a plan. It was just whenever an opportunity arose and was noticed, the republic would use its military to take the advantage. So it was kind of organic or sporadic. In any case, the territorial expansion of Rome placed severe strains on the government and social model of the Republic. Because now you have all of these new people who are part of the Roman government's uh, territory, but they're not Romans. And they're not even Italians. And so what is their status? And how will the laws be enforced in these places against these people? Anyway, before the Punic Wars, most Italians owned some land as farmers and met their own needs from it. But soldiers returning from the war in large numbers could not go back to their farms or farming for various reasons. 
either wasn't profitable or they just couldn't, it was taken. Instead, these veterans would hire themselves out as tenant farmers or went from labor in Rome itself. In the meantime, wealthy Romans used the expand and expanded their land ownership with profits and slaves for wars. And agricultural efforts turned away from subsistence and towards cash crops like olives, grapes, and cattle. So now we're seeing a centralization of wealth to a, a, a smaller number. This is creating a, a, a de facto oligarchic uh, event in the social history. This leads to increasing economic disparity that will work as the fulcrum over which the republic, the government of the republic is broken. This reminds me a lot of ways of the function of war in United States history. You can see the French and Indian War led to the American Revolution. You can see the Mexican-American War adding territory but destabilizes the social uh, compromises and leading to the Civil War. So war can cause the same types of problems no matter what century we're in. Next, let's talk about the Gracchan reforms. Tiberius Gracchus became the tribune of the plebs in 133 BCE and proposed legislation that would take some public lands that had been illegally held and distribute it in some small plots to the poor while, borrower, while prohibiting it from being sold by those uh, poorer people. It was opposed by the wealthy and powerful senators who held much of this publicly, public, quote, public land. When it was put to a vote, another tribune exercised a veto over Tiberius' suggestion. So he went over to the Senate, but of course it was rejected. He, tried, he went back to the tribune, he tried again, and Octavius, the, tri, uh, the, the opposing tribune, he vetoed it again, and Gracchus then chose to throw down the gauntlet. He's either to give up or he's going to do something that's radical. He threw down the gauntlet. He had Octavius removed, violating the Republic Constitution, and everyone at that time knows that at stake is no less than the question of whether the people could force through legislation democratically or if this oligarchic, quote, republic, unquote, would remain. Tiberius uh, Gracchus ran for a second term, also breaking tradition. Uh, he uh, ran as a, a kind of – he was, he was referred to as like a demagogic tyrant – a riot broke out at the next election. A mob of senators and their loyalists, or maybe their clients in the patron-client relationship, they killed Tiberius. The it was the first political bloodshed in Roman history. But this put fundamental social and economic issues, real table, kitchen, you know, dinner table issues at the center of Roman political life, rather than these kind of upper crust squabbles between wealthy families over questions of honor. And so real issues are now political issues. Now there, was a, now there was a new option besides just ingratiating yourself to the aristocracy to get laws passed or to get ahead. Now it became clear that you, like Tiberius Gracchus had, you could campaign yourself to political power with backing from the public. And such political pe people going forward are referred to as popularities. And this was, a, this was opposed to opposed by those who were called the optimates, who are basically advocated oligarchic elitist rule, like rule by the best people. 
The issues at stake here were as fundamental as land ownership and reform of taxation and debt uh, systems, fundamental as foreign policy questions, etc. And these issues divided Romans until the end of the Republic and certainly played a role in creating the social and political space for an imperial revolution. The people are divided. The republic is divided. And even the powerful, powerful wealthy interests are divided about what should be done to either go towards a more, more democracy or less. But even if you supported the oligarchic system and you're a part of this elite uh, wealthy class, there, was, there were divides about what should be done to maintain that. Should you just go hardcore and just fight back uh, these popular elements, democratic elements? Or should you be more kind of compromising and diplomatic to do it? And so we're having these wedges in society. And with these wedges, it creates an opportunity for a revolutionary change. Next, we're going to talk about Gaius Gracchus, who was the brother of Tiberius. He was elected in 123 BCE, and all other tribunes supported him. He pushed through land reforms stabilized the price of grain by building more granaries so that they could be stored so you don't deal with fluctuating market prices because of uh, more fluctuation in the supply of grain. So you have more stored up, stable, helps stabilize the price. When people have food, they're less likely to uh, engage in radical uh, revolutionary behavior. He advocated new colonies to meet the demand for farms. He also worked for an alliance with the this new class that was emerging called the equestrian class. And they were called that because they used to be Roman cavalry. And they had, some, they had money. They weren't senators, but they had grown wealthy as a class through warfare and land purchase and speculation. In 129, Gaius pushed through a law that gave no, domination over a new province of per, uh, Perga- Pergamum to the equestrians. Uh, Gaius was therefore able to build a coalition, a political coalition, he was re-elected in 122. Gaius uh, Gracchus wanted to give citizenship to all Italians now. But average Roman citizens in Rome itself did not support that. He was not re-elected in 121 the next year. And the Senate, again, the oligarchy strikes back. The Senate engineered a violent conflict. A consul was given martial law powers. Gaius was killed in a riot. And Senate, the Senate's court put 3,000 of his supporters to death without trial. It's a kangaroo court. In 111, Marius was elected consul, and war was declared on uh, Jugurtha, the king of Numidia, because he massacred a class of Roman businessmen. Uh, Jugurtha was finally defeated with help of a military subordinate named Sulla, who resented not getting the credit for defeating this Jugurtha rebellion. Meanwhile, in 105, the tribes of Cimbri and the Teutons in the north were marching down the Rhone Valley in Italy, and Marius was elected again to go and defeat them, and served, uh, and he uh, served in that role for until 100 BCE. Marius used volunteers for the army. He dispossessed, which was mostly composed of dispossessed farmers who engaged in soldiering as an economic opportunity, a social advancement opportunity. And he took on the type of traditional client relationship with the general Marius, with bonuses, promises of land upon retirement, a pension bonus when you relieve the army. 
And at this point, this class of, of Romans or Italians start looking to the general and not the government for their needs and for their opportunities. And this starts building a potential for military generals to become powerful enough to challenge the state itself or the government itself. From the years 90 to 88 BCE, there were a series of wars with various Italian uh, tribes, various Italian peoples that ended with all, with all of them receiving some kind of brokered reform that made all Italians citizens of the Roman Republic and they also got some local governing power, so the kind of early form of federalism. Uh, Sulla became consul next in the year 88. He was given command to put down a revolt in Asia Minor, but Marius came back out of obscurity, out of retirement, I suppose, with equestrian class support, and the assembly, assembly gave it back over to him. So for the first time, Sulla marched his army on Rome and regained the command he had been given to go to Asia Minor. This is, this is important. You got, if you're wondering why are they fighting over these commands and, and why are they so interested to undermine each other to get these military commands? Well, number one, you get honor and glory, and that's, you get this the reputation as a, as a, as a soldiering uh, genius. Second, you get this economic opportunity for yourself and for your soldiers. And third, if you can get this kind of established relationship with a large army, you have personal power. And so being given these commands by the government of the republic was a huge personal opportunity for whichever general got the job. And so Marius comes back, he gets it. Sulla marches his army into Rome itself, and he gets the command back. Sulla left for Asia Minor, and Marius immediately moved into Rome and took over with support of other consuls. Sulla was banished while he was gone, and senators who supported him were killed. Sulla negotiated peace to end the conflict in Asia Minor, and he was eager to return to Rome, which was in civil war for a year. Sulla won. He appointed himself dictator to remake the government. He outlawed opposition. He handed uh, money benefits over to veterans to get their support. He created new senators from the equestrian class. He stripped the tribune of the plebs of power, legislative authority, governing authority generally, and significance. He did improve the legal system, though judges and jurors were all senators. And Sulla retired in 79 BCE. So this is kind of like a mini-revolution here. Sulla comes back, he makes himself consul, he then makes himself dictator to do what he wants to do, and he's, you can see how he is completely stripping, streamlining uh, the government, which may sound good, but this is all going towards empowering his, his office as dictator and also the Senate at the expense of all of these other stakeholders. In Roman society. When he retired in 79, this new constitution, this new government framework was attacked immediately. Pompey comes next. He was given command of an army. He was then appointed a proconsul for Spain in 77 when the Marian general resisted control because he didn't like Sulla. He was loyal to Marius. 
In 71, Pompey returned to Rome after putting down a rebellion, and Crassus was given broad powers as a general to put down the Spartacus uprising, that slave rebellion. They both demanded the consulship in the year 70, although um, Pompey was ineligible because he hadn't gone through the, the experience of different lower offices that was required to be named consul. So he joined, they joined forces promising to restore the tribune of the plebs. They got the equestrian class to support them by promising to return the courts to their control and back away from the Senate oligarchy. They both won election. They repealed those solo reforms. In 67 BCE, the law was passed to give Pompey imperium powers for three years over the entire Mediterranean. He was empowered to raise troops and fight piracy, and he, Pompey was very successful. There was an uprising in Asia Minor. He was given imperium over all of Asia next. He defeated that uprising. And in 62 BCE, Rome, the Roman frontier uh, reached all the way to the Euphrates. So Pompey has really make, made a name for himself all over the Roman Republic, the Roman Republic's imperial territory. So it stressed all the way to the Euphrates and Mesopotamia. He was more popular than ever. And at that point, of course, jealousy, Crassus allies with Julius Caesar. In the meantime, to check Pompey, he, Julius Caesar came from an old family, he was backed by popular elements of society. And Caesar and Crassus, they needed each other for military opportunity and, and, and uh, to build a uh, popular soldier and public following. They were opposed in the year 63 by Cicero, another famous uh, Roman, and he, was elected, uh, and he was elected consul over Crassus. So Cicero is elected consul. Pompey, meanwhile, returns in triumph but as Italy was stable, he couldn't take advantage of chaos. He couldn't take advantage of making a claim that there's some emergency situation. So he returns in triumph to Italy. Italy is fairly stable. So Pompey agrees and chooses to disband his army. He doesn't really have much other choice. He requested land decisions to be a, the land decisions that he had made uh, in the east uh, to settle what the province territory should look like. To be he had requested that those decisions he had made as the proconsul to be approved and for plots of land to be given to his loyal veterans. The Senate rejected those requests out of fear of how successful and powerful Pompey was becoming. So the Senate just says no because they're trying to take Pompey down a peg. This pushes Pompey towards an alliance with Crassus and Caesar, even though they all have their own personal selfish agenda for power. In the year 60, Caesar returns from Spain. He's wanting to have a, a great procession to honor his achievements, and he also wants to run for consul. At this time, it's illegal, actually, to do both. You can't have a big popular parade and run for consul. You can run for consul or you can have the parade. He wants to do both. So this pushes Caesar into this alliance with Crassus and Pompey. So they're all getting these, these independent reasons to work together because the Senate is trying to keep control for itself. In the year 59, they elected consul. A land bill was passed for Pompey and his veterans. Caesar got governorship of Illyricum and Gaul for five years so he could make his military name. 
to get more glory, more opportunity economically. And Crassus got a large tax break for the equestrian class, which was kind of you know, politically aligned most strongly with Crassus. In the year 56 BCE, there are several military adventures and successes for Caesar. Gaul was conquered. Uh, Caesar receives a five-year extension in his command. Crassus and Pompey are consuls again in 55. They defeat the Gallic tribes. And at this time, Caesar has 13 loyal legions. This time, unlike when Pompey was finished making his military name, Caesar has 13 legions, and he returns to Rome in a time when there is political and social crisis. Crassus had died fighting the Parthians and Carre, and Pompey was jealous and fearful with his jealous and fearful allies with the Senate, and Pompey was made the sole consul. The Senate wanted Caesar to come back to Rome where he could be basically put down, where he, he could be stripped of his influence and his power. He want, they wanted Caesar back to Rome where he could be stripped of power, where he could be exiled, and in 49, the Senate ordered Caesar to give up his command by a certain deadline. Caesar orders his legions to cross the Rubicon River. This sparks a constitutional crisis, a crisis of authority, a civil war. In the year 45, Caesar defeats the forces of Pompey. Caesar has full power at this point. He institutes many reforms to be rational instead of traditional. Let's see, Julius uh, and Alexander, which is in the use today, with my, uh, he institutes the Julian calendar. That's what I was trying to say. He institutes the Julian calendar, which is in use today, with minor changes that uh, came in from Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in the 1500s. Before that, uh, Rome had operated off a lunar calendar, and the seasons were shifting, uh, which uh, a lunar calendar is shorter than 365 days. And so every year that passes, you're getting back to say, let's just call it January 1st. The next year, what you call January 1st, is not the same uh, solar location of the Earth. And so the seasons are shifting, uh, back, shifting ahead of you. And so when you say it's January, the weather is totally different. So Julian, this is an example of the rationalization that Julian's bringing into uh, the Roman society. So he institutes the calendar, which is much closer to... Uh, the actual number of days the earth takes to rotate the sun. He increases the Senate to 900. He fills it with Italians and provincials who are loyal to him at the expense of old, wealthy Roman families. The Senate remained, but all military power was held by Caesar, and therefore at this point we can call this an empire. Caesar has real control. A law will not be passed if he doesn't agree to it. A government action will not be taken unless Caesar approves it. And so, regardless of what these institutions are, because Caesar has the military and Caesar has the power to determine what happens or doesn't happen, we can call him an emperor. We call this civilization now an empire, not a republic, even if you have a senate. In the year 46 BCE, he named himself dictator, and then the next year he said, oh, oh, he named himself dictator for 10 years, and then the next year he named himself dictator for life. He had the consulship, he was the tribune of the plebs, he was the chief priest, 
He was also created new, uh, basically, offices for himself. He named himself this new thing called the Prefect of Morals. And as the prefect, that gave himself sensorial powers. If you remember from the last episode, that was the power to name who could be a sen- who would be eligible to be a senator, name who could be banished for moral lack of integrity, etc. Also gave himself the power to name the magistrates. So all government power is coming into the offices of Caesar himself. This obviously led to opposition. A conspiracy of Longinus and Brutus uh, and 60 other senators. On March 15th of 44 BCE, Julius entered the Senate without bodyguard, which was usual for him, and he was stabbed to death. They were called tyrannicides, but, uh, which was basically a, a badge of honor. They, they killed someone that they said was viewed as a tyrant. And in many ways, he was a tyrant. He was an authoritarian. But they didn't have a plan. And a conflict continues on for two years. So over 13 more years after that of civil war, Caesar's legions become loyal to Caesar's grandnephew, who was Octavius. He was a sickly teenage uh, male, but he came to Rome anyway, surprising everyone and claiming his inheritance. He's like, I am the successor of what Caesar had accomplished in terms of the military, in terms of the government changes. He won the support of army veterans, but he was denied the consulship. So Octavius marched on Rome in 43 BCE. The consuls declared the assassins of his uh, great uncle outlaws, which means that they could, be, they could be killed without any consequence. Brutus and Cassius had an army, so he allied, so Octavius allies with Mark Antony and Lepidus, the governor of western provinces. They went, they took Rome, they appointed themselves the second triumvirate. And in 42 BCE, they defeat the armies of Brutus and Cassius. Lepidus is given control of, in the African territories. Mark Antony got control in the east, in the Hellenistic world, basically, with a base in Alexandria. Egypt, and Octavian maintained control in Rome and the West. Next, he had to deal with a war against Sextus, who was the son of Pompey. He defeated him. He had to find land for 100,000 veterans in Italy, so he confiscates a lot of property, makes a lot of enemies, but also makes a lot of friends. And he defeats Pompey in 36 BCE. Mark Antony in the East in Alexandria is with Cleopatra, He had tried to attack Parthia without any military help from Octavian, and this was a disaster. Antony therefore realizes that it's not really a triumvirate. He is basically a competitor with Octavian, so this little alliance is breaking down. They're really fighting with each other without saying it for power, and Mark Antony starts relying more and more on Cleopatra and the forces of the East for support. This plays into Octavian's effort to undermine Mark Antony's support in the West. He goes to a festival. He, he makes a lot about Mark Antony going to a festival with Cleopatra, who is declared the queen of kings. And the son that Cleopatra had with Julius Caesar was named the king of kings. In the year 31 BCE, at Actium in Greece, they're basically 
there's not even pretending to be um, allies anymore. They, they go to war with each other. Mark Antony at Actium in Greece, Mark Antony is cut off by the military forces of Octavian. Uh, Octavian pursues uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra all the way back to Alexandria, where the, they both commit suicide. At that point, the civil wars are over. Octavian is the unchecked, unopposed, uh, absolute master of the Mediterranean Empire that is now the Roman Empire. He now faces the task of restoring order, prosperity, and creating a new government system that reflects his power, his imperium, but also outwardly and ostensibly respects the traditions and expectations of Roman society. That is the end of the Roman Republic. The next thing that we will talk about is the history of the Roman Empire going forward from Emperor Octavian. My name is Daniel. This is the European History Podcast. If you like, again, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you would, go on to Facebook, our Facebook page at the European History Podcast. And just leave a little comment about where you're from and what you've enjoyed about the series, what you, maybe things that you would like to see as kind of extra bonus things that I could post on Facebook that you'd like to know more about as I talk about new topics. Thank you for listening. See you next time.